Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Benjamin Powell. He is a professor of economics at Texas Tech University and the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University Rawls Institute or something like that, right? Something like that, right? Um, He is also the North American editor of the Review of Austrian Economics. Welcome, Benjamin. Hey. Hello, Julia. Good to be with you. (laughs) Today, we are going to be talking about one of the more controversial aspects of globalization, which is sweatshops. Today, we're going to be exploring whether globalization, which undoubtedly improves lives of consumers in the U.S., hurts workers in third world countries. You're the author of the book Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy, so you're the perfect scholar to talk to about this. Before I start, I want to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, which is, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, I don't want to say that you all don't, because, of course, some of you know things that others don't. But I think that one of the biggest misconceptions of younger people today that has to do with economics or political economy is a belief that democratic socialism would be possible. Uh, there's a reason why everywhere socialism has been tried. It has turned into totalitarian political systems. It's hard or nearly impossible to maintain a large degree of political freedom once you give up your economic freedoms, because then you no longer have an independent voice and the state can punish dissent. And when economic stagnation sets in under socialism, which it always does, uh, usually voters would turn people out of office. Uh, But Instead, the state represses that and political freedom is usually lost as well. So the attraction of socialism among young people, but saying this time it would be different. I don't mean like the Soviet Union, uh, I think is a probably the biggest misconception among young people. I like that answer. I mean, I never really thought it would be possible, but I'm kind of different. I'm a little bit of an oddity, I would say, but... I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I know a lot of people that really think it's a good idea. And I don't know. I feel like they're idealists. They're not thinking about if it's actually possible in the context of like, first, the system that we have right now of like changing everything, but also they don't understand the consequences. So I think that's a really good answer. Um, Let's jump in. First, I wanted to ask you kind of a definition question, which is, what are sweatshops and how is it different from slave labor? Is it different from slave labor? Yes. So important distinctions. So sweatshops are places that have very poor working conditions, very low wages, um, unhealthy or unsafe conditions, uh, 
those at least can compare to jobs in the United States or other wealthier countries. But they're all places where workers choose to work, admittedly from a poor set of options, otherwise they wouldn't choose to work in such lousy places. But that choice is what distinguishes it from slave labor. Slave labor is when you use coercion, the threat of violence, to force people to take jobs that they wouldn't otherwise perform. Whereas sweatshops, when workers choose to work in them, despite the bad conditions, which I do not deny the bad conditions in them, but when they choose to work in them, that choice demonstrates that those workers believe it's their least bad option. In a piece over at EconLib, you write, quote, sweatshops have deplorable working conditions and extremely low pay compared to the alternative employment available to me and probably you. That is why we choose not to work in sweatshops. All too often, the fact that we have better alternatives leads first world activists to conclude that there must be better alternatives for third world workers too, end quote. Can you tell us what the characteristics are of what? I said I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, could you tell us what characteristics of sweatshops are the most shocking to people in countries like the United States? Well, I mean, it varies from, from one to another. And sweatshop is a kind of blanket term that encompasses a, a wide variety of different factories. But in general, I think uh, how low the pay is, uh, workers earning only a few dollars a day in some cases, um, are probably the most sh shocking, maybe. In other times, particularly if you look at Bangladesh, a, co a country that's had uh, a, a number of sweatshops, a lot of garments produced there, uh, where you've had factory fires or collapses where workers have died working in unsafe conditions. Maybe that's the most shocking to some. So that doesn't sound great. So what is the simplest case for sweatshops? And what are alternative jobs to sweatshops for people in those countries? So it's important to realize that Sweatshops, while they pay very low wages by our standards, they almost universally pay higher wages than most other options available to these poor workers in the countries where they operate. Often the alternatives are working in subsistence agriculture, household services, places where people earn considerably less, and, and certainly in the case of agriculture, where on-the-job risks of injury or death are often even higher. So workers choose to work in these firms because it is a better option, given their situation and where they are. So what do you say to people who tell you, oh, so you're okay with sweatshops because it's the least bad option that people have? I'd first say that we don't make people better off by advocating policies that take away someone's least bad option. We can want to see better conditions and better wages for these workers. But that involves expanding options available to them, not outlawing their current least bad option by imposing laws like minimum or living wages or health and safety mandates that would jeopardize the very jobs that are putting them ahead of many of their countrymen. In other words, I would think that well-meaning people who want to eliminate sweatshops don't realize that by doing so, they actually reduce the choices, wages, and working conditions of workers in third world countries. For instance, well, what what are the consequences of banning all imports into the U.S. of products that were made from child labor? So, 
often children will work in, in sweatshops and you know the children don't work there because their parents are dumb or mean it's because their families are really desperately poor and they need, need the meager earnings of the child to help support the family um, outlawing uh, imports of products made with child labor doesn't get rid of that poverty it just takes away their least bad way of dealing with it and most children who work in poorer countries around the world do not work in manufacturing for export. Most of them work in agriculture, often subsistence agriculture, and household services is the other next most typical employment. Again, both less remunerative for children as well as adults. Uh, so the ones working in the factories tend to earn a little bit more. Outlawing the imports, it's mostly not agriculture that comes to our country from them, and it's certainly not their household services. So it means eliminating jobs that are relatively better paid and at least compared to agriculture safer for children in factories and those children then resorting to working in these other industries where they earn less are more at risk and for that matter uh, build less human capital that's likely to raise their wages in the future i think people need to understand how sweatshops have disappeared around the globe where they were previously juliet i'm talking to you today from uh, southern new hampshire uh, I grew up uh, not too far from here in the Merrimack Valley in Massachusetts, the city of Haverhill, which was known as the shoe city for its 19th century shoe production. My undergraduate degree was from UMass at Lowell, of course, the heart of the Industrial Revolution here in 19th century United States. The textile jobs and shoe jobs that were here were what would be considered sweatshops today in terms of the wages they paid and the working conditions that they had. But over time, as we accumulated more capital, more technology, those workers became more productive. And as workers became more productive, they started to earn more money. And as they earned more money, they wanted improved working conditions. And that's how sweatshops were largely eliminated in the United States. And in the United States and Great Britain, that's a long process, somewhere around 100, 150 years from the start of industrial revolution to something that looks like post-sweatshop. But other places around the globe, that process has gone on much more quickly. If you think about where sweatshops were in 1960, it's Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan. Those places in about 30 years made the jump from a pre-industrial standard of living to something that is post-sweatshop. So the sweatshops are part of a process of economic development that eventually leads to better working conditions for adults and child labor disappear. And you find as families escape extreme poverty, rates of child labor absolutely plummet. So how how did we stop using sweatshops? I mean, because if it happened here, it must have happened in places in Europe, like France and the UK, stuff like that. How did we make that transition away? Was it because of laws and child labor also? Was it because of laws preventing that or what? No, it was largely occurred because of the process of economic growth that accumulated more capital and more technology that raised productivity. The laws came after the fact usually and codified what the process of competition irony would do. So United States had child labor laws in the 19th century. The one in my home state or my home state of Massachusetts was children under 12 can't work more than 10 hours per day in a factory. It was a law that was simply not a binding constraint. So a child could work a six day week, 10 hours a day of 60 hours in a factory. Uh, 
in various states, and this is also true in uh, other countries in Britain and France and Germany, would pass child labor laws, but they just weren't binding for the type of work that usually was being done. Uh, economists who have studied mandatory school attendance laws in the United States and anti-child labor laws find that once you control for economic growth, these laws had little effect. What this means is, as incomes were rising, people would take children out of the workforce. As incomes were rising, they would want more of their compensation and improved working conditions. And then, after the fact, the government would pass a law that would codify these things and say, oh, yes, we shouldn't have children under a certain age working so many hours. Or, yes, we should have some minimum health and safety standards. And to someone who looks at political economy questions, none of this should be very surprising. Workers agitated for many of these things with unions for years. They didn't get it through because big business was also an interest group that would prevent laws from being passed. But once the process of competition starts making them pay higher wages, give better working conditions, and not employing children anyway, well, then it's not that big a deal if they let the law get passed, so they don't bother lobbying against it. So it was the forces of economic growth that really led to these changes, not laws. And if we passed the type of laws what the mistake is today, people want to take the U.S. laws of post-sweatshop de development and impose them to poorer countries today, instead of looking at what type of laws did the United States have when we were as poor as these other countries. So if those laws that they imposed about in the U.S. about the age being 12, if that didn't really have much of an effect, why even put it in place? Well, politicians like to pass all sorts of laws and say they're doing something. Ideally, like they get to pass a law and uh, have it not have its negative consequences, but then claim credit for any good development. The first time we got a national child labor law was uh, 1937-38 with the Fair Labor Standards Act. And if you look at the U.S. income adjusted to today's dollars then, it was about $11,000 per capita. But if you look around the globe today, once you get to a level of about $11,000 per capita, there is no child labor anymore in those countries. So we passed the national law after it had already taken place. You know, there's still a few laggards maybe of little uh, small cases that uh, get affected. But for the most part, the laws come after the growth. Now, when I think about sweatshops, I think about the minimum wage, though it's not exactly equivalent. In my podcast with Don Boudreau, we talked about the consequences of minimum wage, one of them being how it makes it difficult for low-skilled workers to access the first step of the income mobility ladder. Sweatshops seem to be similar in which, in the way that they are part of an industrial development process that leads to higher wages and better working conditions over time. You have a map in your book that shows us that as countries get richer, they stop using sweatshops. Can you give us an example or a few examples of countries that have shown such growth in the recent years? Sure. And you're absolutely right, Julia. A lot of this is like minimum wage, except at much lower levels. Uh, and it's often something like a minimum or living wage that people are advocating, raising, or enforcing in some of these countries that would kick this bottom rung of the ladder out from under people. Uh, but it is a bottom rung of the ladder, and it's a step going up it. So I think uh, the example of Hong Kong is a, w a wonderful one in this case. Uh, we looked at 
go back to 1960 and they've got a per capita income under $500. And sweatshops doing textiles are located there. And they start becoming more productive. And people will talk about a, a global race to the bottom uh, where sweatshops just leave a country and, and go to poorer countries. And they make it sound like it's scorched earth, but they're missing the, the, the way that they move on. What happens is as labor becomes more productive, other industries start bidding it away. So instead of doing textiles, now you start seeing toys. Then you start seeing electronic circuit boards. Then you start seeing more and more advanced industries competing for the labor where that labor produces a lot more value so it can be paid more. And as a result, the textile factories can't afford to bid the workers away from these other industries. So the textile factories then move on from Hong Kong to Taiwan to Bangladesh eventually to mainland China in more recent years. That's the natural process of how this evolves. And there's still poorer countries where they could get to. But the good news is when there's no, it's not like the last countries on board have to get stuck at the sweatshop stage of economic development. Let's say somewhere in interior Africa is the last country that, that gets them. Well, as the labor becomes more productive there, other industries will again bid for it, but we're still gonna need clothes to be produced. And instead, clothing production will start being a higher wage, higher productivity place everywhere in the world. Because we do still produce some clothes in the United States. Um, and the workers who do it here in the United States are relatively more productive and have higher wages and pay compared to how it's done in the rest of the world. So um, what would your advice be to activists in the U.S. who want workers in third world countries to have better lives? If they're not advocating for the end of sweatshops, what should they be fighting for? All right, so let's, let's let them keep fighting for these workers, but let's do it more intelligently. So instead of passing anti-sweatshop laws or prohibitions on imports, we should be thinking about things that would expand options for these people, things that would make them more productive. So easy one on the margin is more free trade with these countries. Stop taxing the exports that they send us. Um, and that will instantly make the workers a little bit more productive because the firm then gets more revenue from each uh, product that's being made, which makes the workers then more productive. Uh, a real alternative one, if it's the problem is the process of development requires an institutional environment of a large measure of economic freedom, some security of property rights, and a tolerable degree of the rule of law. Those are really hard things to give to another country. They have to be homegrown and home enforced. But one alternative for workers is give them more visas to the United States. They work in the sweatshops because it's their least bad option. If we would more freely issue visas for people to come from other parts of the world to the United States, instantly their productivity goes up. If you take a Haitian, a country that has sweatshops, out of Haiti and move them to the United States, their income on average goes up by 1,000% overnight. That's faster than any sort of development through the traditional process could happen. Um, so I think activists would need, should refocus their activities. If they're concerned particularly with child labor, well, raise money and um, use a nonprofit and pay children to go to school. Children only work because they need their meager earnings to support their family. If instead you open up a missionary school and pay students to attend or just start a nonprofit that pays them to go to other schools, well, that'll get children out of the labor force. That's choice expanding rather than choice contracting, which unfortunately is much of what the anti-sweatshop movement focuses on. And 
when, or no, that's not what I want to ask, actually, sorry. Um, what about when activists, like a lot of friends I have, that they really think that this is a dire problem that they can't support, like Nike and companies like that who have sweatshop labor. When there are companies that advocate and say that they use, like they're 100% sweatshop free, is that a good alternative to trying to end sweatshops? For the most part, no. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, people get duped into this often. So in principle, there's nothing uh, wrong with companies branding as sweatshop free and paying higher wages and giving better conditions and marketing their products as such which creates greater value in consumers' minds, which in fact is then the workers being more productive precisely because of how they're treated. And that's all fine. Unfortunately, what usually happens is companies market themselves as sweatshop free, but then they refuse to produce in Bangladesh or in China or in other places where sweatshops exist. And they instead produce in high wage unionized countries where workers already get a good wage and good working conditions but produce more value per time of output. So it makes sense for them to still be able to produce there. So often what you find is when you engage in buying from a company marketing as sweat free, what you're really doing is taking away least bad options from poor people in other parts of the world and instead patronizing the labor of rich people in rich parts of the world. It's feeling good versus doing good. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it really sounds like. <laughs> What would your advice be for activists in the U.S. who want better working conditions for workers in the United States? I mean, we don't have sweatshops, but listening to lots of politicians and people on the campaign trail, workers' conditions seem completely awful in this country. I would invite them to take a tour of any other parts of the world or some of the sweatshops I've visited. Uh, for the most part, working conditions and wages are, are very good in the United States. I mean, our poverty level in, in the United States uh, for an individual is somewhere right around uh, average per capita income for the world. Um, we're, we're pretty well off here in the United States. That's not to say that we don't have problems, but I think that's a whole other podcast of what could we do to get the United States economy working better for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> um. Going back to globalization, can you make your best case for globalization that includes your case for sweatshops and the import of goods produced in these sweatshops? I mean, I think my listeners could use hearing it one more time, and I could also. Um, I don't know about the best case, but think about it this way. There's humans all around the world who all have different content in their brains, who have different capabilities, who have different resources to interact with. The greatest thing that we can do is allow them to all cooperate together, trading their labor and their knowledge with each other to create new products and services to try to serve humanity all around the globe. And when they all do that, our collective knowledge, this is what Matt Ridley calls the, the, the collective intelligence, the global brain, is so much greater, but to gain access to it, we have to allow free interaction and globalization to get these full benefits. If instead we contain ourselves to just within our country, state, city, 
the knowledge and resources at our disposal are just so much less. So um, something I've been thinking about a lot when listening to activists speak out against sweatshops and things like that is that do they really know what's going on inside those people's heads? What do people in working in sweatshops think of the conditions? What do would they would they stop working if the conditions like would they accept a lower pay for better conditions or how would that work? Yeah, so for the most part the this is why you can't separate working conditions from pay. And uh, it's straight up economic theory that would tell you this as well, but I've also surveyed workers on this, is that workers care about both pay and working conditions. Employers care about what the total cost of compensating the worker is, uh, but they don't really care how it's divided between pay, working conditions, or other benefits. They just care about the bottom line of how much it costs them, which means it makes sense for the firm to make that package reflect the preferences of the workers. Otherwise, they're paying more in a cost to them than workers are receiving in a benefit. So this is called compensating differentials in economics. Uh, it's why garbage men get paid more in the United States relative to their skills because the job's less pleasant. Um, and uh, in the context of sweatshops then, it means that conditional on having low total productivity so that total compensation is gonna be low, most of it turns out by the workers is usually desired in the form of monetary pay because they're trying to desperately feed, clothe, and shelter their families. As that total compensation goes up, then they'll demand better working conditions on other margins, essentially as part of their pay increase that comes with the increasing productivity. So finally, I want to ask you my final question, which is what is something that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Um, well, actually, I touched on this issue at one point when answering what we could do to better help the workers when I said give them more visas. Uh, when I was about your age, Juliet, I probably, uh, I was definitely not in favor of completely unrestricted immigration to the United States and was more skeptical of immigrants more generally. And uh, I've completely transformed now that uh much of my work is on immigration, studying the effects of it, uh, both on the economy and more broadly political economy and institutions. And I am an advocate of unrestricted immigration, meaning no quantitative restrictions um, placed on people coming into the United States. And what changed my opinion of that was learning the economics of how overwhelmingly big the gains from allowing greater international, essentially international trade and labor through migration are, and that uh, for the most part, these they enhance society in other ways as well. And that most costs of it that people talk about are far overblown. So it was a educational transformation uh, starting when I was in graduate school, probably into becoming a, a professor that my view really moved on that one a lot. And a lot of people, who you've been interviewing me about sweatshops, you know, people can find various videos of me on the internet or from television talking about these different things. And the, the comment thread on the, the sweatshop stuff is all, oh, he's obviously a right-wing shrill for corporatism, blah, blah, blah. And then the immigration one is obviously a politically correct lefty professor who just likes open borders. And I'm like, no, 
There's actually something in common between these two things. They're both about globalization and free trade and goods, services, and labor and being consistent across both of them. Uh, even though within the U.S. political climate, one is considered a right-wing type thing and the other is a left-wing type thing. So people who know me from one line of research or the other are often surprised to, to learn about the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and I never quite thought about the depth of how sweatshops beat starvation and child prostitution, but I think that's a really important thing to understand. I mean, this is the beauty of economics, that it brings to light different arguments that people don't really think about or rarely think about. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Juliet.